is a $9 million, 275,000-pound Atlas Agena rocket. Today, it circles the globe at a speed of over 18,000 miles an hour in little more than 80 minutes. Is this any way to see the world? It's a wonderful world if you'll only take the time to go around it. Are you formally challenging me to undertake a journey around the world in 80 days? Hello and welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American History at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Neil Suchak to discuss Around the World in 80 Days, the 1956 epic travel movie based on the 1872 novel of the same name by Jules Verne. Neil is a DPhil candidate in history at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and his research focuses on the imperial dimensions of the American peace movement at the end of the 19th century. Welcome, Neil. Hello, hello. Wow, it's so great to finally have you on the podcast. A uh, bit of like meta commentary if you will listeners uh neil and i sit about five feet from each other in the office yes um yeah. and it's this has been a long time coming uh as a with neil as a guest on flashback yes thank you for having me long long time listener first time first time podcaster i guess <laughs> excellent yeah yes and you've been a listener for a while now very supportive uh, of this endeavor i have um but kind of just like jumping right into it i guess one of the reasons why it's taken so long is that your research topic, uh, American peace activists in the late 19th century, surprisingly, I really don't know why, uh, hasn't had a movie adaptation, a direct movie adaptation about the peace activists. No, 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 no it hasn't. Um, and I guess it just goes to say that peace doesn't necessarily make good cinema. Uh, I'm sure that you have got several war films in the works. Um, I've seen that you've done Glory. Um, yes, and we've so, done Glory, we've done Fury, we've got a few coming up as well. Exactly. Um, and I don't know, I think to, to some, uh, you know, peace may seem boring, but I think, you know, the point of my research is that, you know, peace is about far more than just people sitting around singing Kumbaya. It's also kind <laughs> of like a, a, a style of politics and a, a, a way that you view the world. Um, and so while that might not necessarily make for compelling cinema, uh, mm-hmm. It makes, I think, you know, a, 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 an interesting in on uh, on kind of looking at the United States' role in the world. Yeah, definitely. Which I think, again, this movie kind of skirting. Uh, this is such an interesting one because I was watching it, and you know, it, it's an American production. Uh, the the man kind of behind its impetus, Michael Todd, is this very famous Broadway producer, very American. Um, so its production is American story, but the movie mm-hmm. itself is not so American, yes, which we can get yes. into a bit later. Um, yeah. I but... mean, I, I was also thinking, and you as, a, as an historian of a similar period mm. may, also, may or may not agree with this. I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, how few really good depictions there are of the kind of the long progressive era in American yeah. cinema. And I think, you know, it's not just that peace doesn't make good cinema. I think Hollywood also is kind of missing a trick by not exploiting, uh, you know, kind of 
the 1880s through to the start of the First World War as yeah. being a, a historical period full of really fun, vibrant, um, and interesting characters. I mean, I agree 100%. And I don't know how much it's just us being like, isn't the stuff we study really cool? But I do think... <laughs> No, I do think it is like I, you know, there are like I read the stories and I'm like, how have we not had a movie about you know X Y Z? Exactly. And I wonder how much of it is like kind of the medium coming of age at that time as well, mm, um, or yes. if that has had has anything to do with it. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, there's no for what is you know, I kind of like I've often thought about like, okay, what would an episode with just myself look like? And there's no real like kind of like theatrical uh, movie on women's suffrage. Yeah, the suffragists show up a lot in movies. Um, you know, Mary Poppins to take an English example or the great race, uh, the unsinkable Molly Brown. But, uh, yeah, there's not like, you know, the suffrage movie, at least from an mm-hmm. American perspective, of course you have the, yeah. the recent, um, with, um, Carrie Mulligan, right. Carrie Mulligan, uh, suffragette from a few years ago. But that of course is about the English, you know, kind of uh, perspective exactly. on things anyways. Uh, but <laughs> I think, yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, exploring this, time period in cinema is really underappreciated uh and it's surprising as well that as we were thinking about what movie you could come on to cover so many of the examples are from an english perspective and i think this movie kind of does that i mean it you know we have our sojourn in america um but it is an english story kind of through and through in a lot of ways and i assume like jules verne was also kind of commenting on that when he wrote the story in the 1870s as well um but i think we're getting a bit of ahead of ourselves as much as i love this conversation uh firstly um you know i kind of said your blurb at the start of this episode but would you like to talk the listeners through like your research and how it relates to this movie of course yeah so as you mentioned i work on the kind of uh, the american peace movement at the end of the 19th century and i look at them as being uh, theorists of international relations from the American perspective, and specifically as kind of being a group of proto-liberal internationalists. Um, and the, my view is that a lot of their ideas, a lot of their thoughts gets car- get carried forward um, uh, to people like Woodrow Wilson, and then even beyond that into the establishment of kind of what some might consider to be an American rules-based international order. And these ideas of liberal internationalism, which uh, the peace movement in this period um, uh, portray, um, in my mind, are so neatly intertwined with empire. And so what I'm really doing is I'm looking at ideas of uh, liberalism and conflict reduction in international relations, and I'm seeing how uh, empire fits into this model of seeing the world. And this might sound a little bit like it has very little to do with this film, um, but one way that you could think about this, I guess, is that um, if you look at depictions of uh, violence in this film, uh, and I'm not going to go into the plot too in depth because we've got a lot more to talk about, um, but this is a period of peace, supposedly, um, a period of the so-called Pax Britannica. Um, and so I think, you know, ideas of war and peace are kind of all over this film. Yeah, definitely. And we... Uh... Yes, we will get into it. <laughs> I agree. I hadn't thought of it, you know, even though I knew, you know, we were doing this, I hadn't really thought about it in that term. Um, I was thinking more, again, like maybe reflective of what I study um, of kind of the transnational cosmopolitanism that this movie so mm-hmm. clearly um, uh, depicts in which I assume your, act- your actors were a part of. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, interesting. Okay, great. So, and then 
so yeah, so that's how it relates to your research. And then maybe we can talk a bit about your relationship with the movie itself. And maybe, sure. and uh, you know, again, knowing what I know, not just this movie, but also because, you know, this is a very famous story. Um, the novel comes out in the 1870s. You have people kind of immediately afterwards uh, trying to replicate it in real life as well. Famously, Nellie Bly, who was the first woman to do so for the New York World magazine. Uh, but it becomes, you know, kind of this like moment of like cultural fascination almost instantly. Uh, so your relationship with this movie, but maybe also other iterations of the same story. Of course. Yeah. So um, I had never seen this movie until we had decided to talk about it. And I'm sure the reasons why we decided to talk about this over other iterations of the movie will become clear. Um, for what it's worth, I had seen during my childhood the Steve Coogan version mm. um, of this film where he plays the main character. And, you know, there's obviously, I think, another adaptation of this with David Tennant as the lead, which yes, is a BBC recent drama. TV series, yes. Which exactly. sounds really good. Um, it does sound really good. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, it's a TV series. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I feel like it would give us so much to talk about, given how long it is, um, mm. that we'd be sat here for hours as well. Um, so I had pretty limited kind of exposure to this film prior to, um, prior to viewing it at the start of this week. And um, I'm sure we can get into my first impressions in a, in a second. But I guess the other big thing which I had known about it is um, that seemingly, you know, every, every single person in Hollywood is in this film. Yes. Um, yeah. And, the, yeah, it's got a star-studded cast in a quite an interesting way. And so that, that was kind of my other you know, interaction with this film. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um Yes, I mean, there are so many, this film is so interesting from a historical perspective, but also from like its place in cinema history, which we can get into later. Yes. Um, but keen to hear your first impressions on it. So I'm going to move us along to the 60 second plot description, which okay. interested to see your approach to this. Uh, for new listeners, this is a chance for our guest to show off their stuff uh, and explain the plot of the film to those who maybe haven't seen it but still want to listen to the episode just so they can be caught up in what we're talking about as the episode progresses um, and the challenge the being is that they giveaway. have 60 seconds to uh, the title is a bit of a dead giveaway and the the, the kind of um, the closing sequence of this movie as well is kind of like almost its own 60 second plot description although it takes longer than 60 seconds um, but yes the point being that you have a minute to do so so Neil are you ready to take the challenge of course. Okay, ready, set, go. So the film opens in the London Reform Club, and here two things happen. Firstly, news breaks that there's been a robbery at the Bank of England of £55,000. Um, and the second thing is that the eccentric British gentleman that is Phileas Fogg turns up and bets his friends and colleagues a good sum of money that he can make it around the world in 80 days. Um, now, a lot of his friends don't think he can do this, and so he sets out to prove them wrong. And he sets out with his new valet in tow, a, uh, a Frenchman called Passport Two. Um, and he travels from London through to um, Spain, through Suez, down through the Suez Canal to India, round to Hong Kong, Yokohama, across the Pacific to the United States, across the United States, and then to back to Britain. While this is all happening, there's speculation in London that he is, in fact, the man that has robbed the Bank of England. And so as he journeys, he is hailed that's by time. an inspector. <laughs> oh, OK. You can keep going there. You're almost done. Yeah. OK, yeah. He's tailed by an inspector that is continuously trying to catch him out um, and only manages to do so 
once he arrives back in the UK at Liverpool, where mm. he arrests him um, and prevents him from um, winning the bet, only for the inspector to so find the day after. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Sorry, to find continue, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, to find that, you know, uh, he's got the wrong man um, and that Fogg is, in fact, innocent. Fogg then also surprisingly realises, oh, we've crossed the international date line. I'm actually a day early, so I can go and win my bet. Um, and uh, everyone lives happily ever after. Yes. Um, and along the way, they also, yeah, as you kind of mentioned, the um, the inspector who's kind of like doggedly t- tailing them around the world as well. Uh, and then also this uh, Indian princess, Ayuda, uh, who joins them in India, uh, which we can get into as well. Yes. Because um, <laughs> that's an interesting aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there, there we go. Around the world in 80 days and 60 seconds, more or less. Um <laughs> Yeah, so just like reactions. I mean, this was my first time watching the film as well. Um, I think I mentioned this on a prior episode as well this season. Um, but I, you know, do have this goal of watching all of the best picture films one day. So this, this was, a, you know, another 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 tally in that goal, um, as this did win best picture. And I was kind of aware of it. And before seeing it, I was also aware that it was, it you know, it, of the 90 films that have won best picture, it's not often regarded as one of the better ones nowadays no um, yeah <laughs> so what, what were you yeah. what were your what were your first reactions I'm curious sure i think the film is incredibly long it's three yes. hours it is um, very long yes i guess it does befit a film that tries to take you around the globe in mm-hmm. in, in such a time but it is incredibly long um uh i think you know it is obviously a film from 1956 and mm-hmm. so carries with it an awful lot of cultural baggage from then, especially when it is uh, depicting ideas of kind of the British Empire mm-hmm. and the United States in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's an awful lot of kind of like, uh, like I say, cultural baggage and problematic things there, yes. um, which I'm sure we can dig into. Um, I, in terms of, you know, my own like preference for this film, mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of on the fence as to whether or not I actually quite like it or if I don't like it. Mm. Um, my kind of, at least in my mind, the kind of jury is out because, you know, I think watching it in 2023, it doesn't seem like kind of much of a cutting edge film. Right. right. Um, but I, ha- I had to kind of like pull myself back and think, you know, this is one of the first films that people ever saw in colour. Mm. Um, I think this is the first, it is the first um, colour motion picture to win certain awards, I think. Um I think the New York's Critic Award, this is the first time they ever gave a film in colour. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a film in colour, this award. Um, so, But best picture for the New York Critics or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and then also, I think they also said that it's one of the first films to go into um, widescreen as well and to be shot yes. in this specific dimension. Yes, so that's kind of the big, yeah. So I, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of with you where I'm like, I mean, I can, I feel like I'm more comfortable saying like I didn't like it because it is three hours long. And lately I have been flirting. I, I, you know, I think recently we've actually kind of seen a return of epic filmmaking in Mm. different ways um, in our current, you know, kind of movie climate. Um, But so like the Batman, I really enjoyed and that's, you know, like a three hour long movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I cannot say the same for this, but I was kind of aware as I was watching it being like, oh, Jesus, this is a slog um, of the fact that it is very much self-study you know the whole thing is it's leaning into this 
moment in Hollywood history of the epic film where films are yes. having to contend with the popularity of television. So yes. they are trying to get people to stay in theaters longer and, you know, have gimmicks that are unavailable on television, which in this movie manifests by its one of these early films called or that is produced using this process, this film process called Todd A.O., which not only is a wide, it's, it's, well, it's a widescreen thing, but it also promises mm-hmm. better sound and clarity. And this is, yes. I think it's, it, it was fascinating for me as somebody who's interested in film history, kind of diving into the history of this process. Mm-hmm. I think people are also maybe more familiar with things like um, Cinerama, which is also another kind of like deep widescreen yes. film projection technique. Um, and Cinemascope, which is a lesser man's version of, I guess, like mm-hmm. Cinerama and Todd Ayo. Um, but this idea that you want like a big picture and you can, you know, it is, you can only get it in the theater, right? Yeah. And these processes are, you know, we have invented, the uh, Michael Todd was kind of like, you know, who was interested in Cinerama at first, mm-hmm. but found kind of different shortcomings with it, invests all this money to create Todd Ayo, which is projected on this like deeply curved screen, but from an audience that is so immersive, right? And it, yes. you can just imagine like seeing this on one of those screens and it's it's an event, right? So it's like, you know, Around the World in 80 Days does not come out in Tadeo immediately all over the country because these are, you know, it's also physical film, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. only several prints made and they're expensive to make and it costs upwards to like $20,000 to install a Tadeo system in a cinema. Mm-hmm. So it is, you have to go to like one of these movie theaters in New York or other major urban centers to see this show. And they have, you know, it is like a theatrical performance in the sense that there are ticketed seats. It's not just you walk in, pay a nickel and, you know, sit down. It is an event. And I think Mm -hmm. that is kind of key to understanding why this film is so, you know, bombast, why it wins Best Picture at the Academy Awards the next year, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other dimension to it is that and kind of like not specifically with technology is that both you and i are very clear on what happens in this film and like we knew that going into the film that too. and there was no yeah. there was no sense of contingency yeah um because it has been iterated on a bunch and you know it's a fairly common story mm-hmm. i think now um and you know when you were talking about kind of the idea of the epic film right you know like this isn't Lord of the Rings, right? Mm. You know, it's you know, there, there's no point at which I think it's not going to make it. Sure. Um, and I think that also kind of makes it a little bit of a drag because I right. know that at the end of the day, he's going to he's going to get through these situations. Mm-hmm. I think as well. I mean, kind of again, like also the kind of the technology I was talking about, but then um, the fact that this is also a travelogue movie, which yes. is almost what I found even more interesting because it's. Um, I mean, if the book works as a travelogue and I think you and I both have like looked at travelogues in our own primary research in our topics because for listeners, like essentially, right, this idea that at the turn of the century that one could travel the world, not by actually getting on a steamship and, you know, going around the mm-hmm. world in 80 days or more so, um, but by consuming the world via like uh, newspaper articles, like serial, serialized mm-hmm. articles, um, books, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, lantern images, stereoscopic images, right? There's a there's a new sense at the turn of the century of a, new ways to consume and new ways to travel that don't involve physically traveling. And this is kind of an extension of that, right? And I think the, yeah. the film sequences of, particularly when um, Passaporte is kind of sitting in a train window and looking out at what, you know, is passing him by and you have several POV shots where you mm-hmm. as the audience member are with them on the ride. You are... Yeah 
joining them on the journey it is a travelogue as well right mm-hmm. so it's an epic yeah. travelogue and that is part of it's not just oh they go to spain it's they go to spain and we take like five minutes to watch bullfighting which i find yes. incredibly dull but which i'm yes. sure <laughs> some audience members appreciated at the time yes and i think really interesting in that and not to get too meta with it hmm. is that all of phileas fogg's colleagues in the reform club are doing exactly that they're all yes. experiencing his travels through the newspaper, um, through kind of uh, telegrams home. And so they are quite literally those armchair tourists yes. as well, as well as you in the cinema. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, I love that. I mean, and then you also see like kind of the rest of the world. I mean, we see Queen Victoria is also kind of like following along and yes. keeping abreast of um, Phineas's travels. So it's really interesting on that. And then I guess that's kind of where the, the reason why it has become best or it, w- it was you know voted for best picture i mean it's worth noting as well like all the other um uh, nominees that year were also equally epic films so this is really hollywood in this big epic moment of you know three hour long films and so on um which again like have not necessarily aged well for us in modern or for modern audiences but in different ways like i think people can still watch spartacus and maybe get involved in the story because it is very a narrative driven mm-hmm. feature whereas this movie is so much well, it was so much dependent on a both the format in which it was screened in, which is you know, I I don't know, I think there was like a Todd AO Film Festival like uh, maybe ten years ago in Germany or something. But you know, it's you can't just like cop down and be like, I'll see this print in Todd AO. Like it's you know, you're you're probably going to watch it on like the thirty three print. Um, uh, and also the fact that the world is so much smaller to us now, even than it was a yeah. hundred years ago, uh, when this kind of I this story is taking place. Yes. Yeah. And. In terms of kind of the novelty of the film as well, um, as I understand it, this film is kind of the advent of the cameo. Hmm. Um, and the cameos are everywhere. Um, it, yeah. You know, seeing kind of uh, John Gielgud, but also Frank Sinatra. Um, His was my favourite. That was also <laughs> my favourite. Him and like, the, the, the saloon scene, we're jumping ahead of ourselves, but the saloon scene mm-hmm. in the US um, with... Frank Sinatra and uh, Marlene Dietrich. Yes. Um, I thought was fantastic. Um, and partly just because Frank Sinatra just doesn't say a word. That's, he just sits there playing the piano. I think that's the magic of it. Because I think a lot of them, you know, like, the ones I did recognize, it sounds like maybe you recognize some of the men more than I did. Um, I, you know, I had some surprises where I saw... Um, uh, Peter Lore and I was like that's Peter Lore uh, which I guess is like the definition mm-hmm. of what you want a cameo to do I knew Frank Sinatra was coming and I was kind of waiting for him and it's, it's just uh, the, the camera is so shy about showing you know you just you just see this man playing a piano for like several shots and finally they, they leave the saloon and then you know he kind of turns or he stops playing he turns around and there he is like old blue eyes just and he just you know gives a little smirk and that's it and I think that's just like a perfect you know dose of frank sinatra <laughs> absolutely um and and i think especially because and you know in that very scene i think you know is partially what the director i think is trying to kind of encapsulate the idea of america mm. in this in like in the in view of the san Fogg francisco and, yeah. yeah yeah exactly and so then you have like this kind of icon of american music in that time mm-hmm. um which I just think is like really, really interesting and really cleverly done. Um, yeah. uh, so, and then of yeah, course I think... also, I guess like following up from that, you have Buster Keaton as the conductor yes. um, on the train as well, who, you know, famous for his like train escapades. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's in his, well, he's quite old at this point, so he's not doing many stunts. Um, but yeah, I just, I really appreciated that as like a little nod to Keaton's career. Who's, 
Keaton himself is also kind of having a career revival in the 1950s in a weird way as kind of people being like oh yeah we liked Buster Keaton and he's appearing in a lot of ads and so on um I kind of wish his role was silent I think that would have been really funny but I understand why they you know they let him talk but um yeah the power of the cameo very important yeah, absolutely. A lot of the Reform Club members are cameos as well, aren't they? Yes. I think most of them are kind of doyen of kind of like British, like they're British thespians. Like okay, Noel, I was Noel Coward and yeah. John Gielgud, the type of people that you would see traditionally in the Globe playing Macbeth, um, mm. which, again, I think is quite knowing, right? That you've got this club of kind of gentil and elite men um, in the story. And we've used actors who are kind of notorious for their... Um, but kind of for for a medium that's uh, considered sl- slightly elite and for, you know, plays mm-hmm. that are, you know, part of, you know, British edu- like British education, right? Um, like kind of like the idea of Britain is kind of almost Shakespeare. And so we're going to use the most notorious like Shakespearean actors. Definitely. And then maybe we use that point as well to kind of jump into the Reform Club. Uh, the actors you look at in your research... Are they members of the Reform Club? Or I was wondering if you could speak to the role of the Reform Club in like transatlantic uh, activism. Sure. So the Reform Club is a club of liberal-minded men, and it is only men, and that's like very uh, the, the last of the joke film. of the movie. The <laughs> last well. joke of the movie. Um, uh, and essentially, it's a club for um, men who have this kind of they're generally middle class. Um, exclusively white men who um, herald from kind of a radical or Whig background in Britain. Um, But by this point in history, um, this really means that they are interested in kind of uh, ideas of education and refinement and how to um, project these ideas of education and refinement from the middle class to the working classes. Mm. Um, And none of my historical actors are largely part of the Reform Club, all but one, hmm. um, and that's Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, um, oh, okay. who is a member of the Reform Club, kind of the uh, uh, Scottish-American philanthropist and peace activist and also steel magnate and businessman. Um, and he is kind of almost the archetypal uh, member of the Reform Club. And he's interested in all of these kind of liberal endeavours of kind of um, education, peace, um, I'm not sure if he's into things like civil service reform, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he's a philanthropist that is, you know, it's ostensibly upper or at least middle class. Um, and then is trying to, you know, give away his money mm. um, in order to, at least in his mind, kind of further the cause of both uh, Britain and America, but then also humanity, I guess, is what he would think. Okay. So I guess then how do you, how did you read Fogg in comparison to the other reform club members? Because it does, you know, in one sense, they are activists, but it is in this very like Victorian way of, um, you know, kind of like self-composure and middle class values and so on. But Fogg seems to be he's I guess and I don't know how much of this is from the novel or is like kind of replicated in other adaptations. Um, but he seems a bit of the eccentric. So we kind of we're introduced to him as this man who cannot find a good butler um, because all of his butlers don't follow his instructions to the T, right? He's like, I will have mm-hmm. lunch at 12.54, or uh, that's a bit late for him, I think. But, you know, like he's very <laughs> specific in what he wants. Yes. And that's how Passaporte, um, sorry, not Passaporte, sorry, Passaporto enters the uh, the picture. But 
Yes, yeah, I think he is the kind of model of British, like the British eccentric. Um, and I think, again, I'm not sure if this is really like hammed up in the book, but I wonder if that's partially kind of like the American gaze and the yes. American view yeah. of Britain. Um, because the, you know, the opening of the film, um, well, I think there's kind of like two, the two ways that the film opens. Oh, we, we have to of, talk about that as well. <laughs> yeah, we really do. Um, but the kind of the opening of the narrative um, mm-hmm. is kind of like the Grenadier Guards, they're playing Rule Britannia. Um, mm-hmm. And it gave me very, it almost felt like kind of watching the coronation, which has just happened here in the UK, but from yes. American TV. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I think, you know, I do, like Elias Fogg in this film is kind of, you know, I think, a lot of kind of British stereotypes um, and kind of the definition of the British eccentric, I guess. Definitely. I think, yeah, I, I have the quote here. An Englishman never jokes about a wager. Um, uh, it's, I, yeah, there's like lots of jabs at this kind of idea of, mm-hmm. uh, or I think yeah, a very American understanding of British nobility or British genteel kind of, you know, behavior. Um, and like you said, kind of the eccentric old man, especially when you kind of get into this nascent romance between uh, Fog and Ayuda, because she is clearly interested in him, but this mm-hmm. man just wants to play cards. And she's like, you know, like, are there any like women in his life? Like, what's the in? Um, and Canton Floss, who is playing uh, Passaportu, is just like, girl, he just he just wants to play his cards. That is all he's interested in. <laughs> yeah, I, his response is when when she asks him. Um, was there ever a woman in his life? He responds, he had a, he had a mother, I think. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a question, yeah. <laughs> um, right, so it's just, you know, it's it's kind of interesting on that. But yeah, the, the, I guess maybe we can get into, like, the, the character, because this is a comedy as well, which the original book isn't. Um, the character, I guess, of the three main... Was, mm-hmm. it, it's And maybe this is kind of a good way to get into the Empire as well. So you have, and I think for my money like Passaportu who is played by the um Mexican actor his name Mario Reyes who is better yeah better known as Content Floss um who is variously described as this kind of um Mexico's answer to Charlie Chaplin and who Charlie Chaplin greatly mm-hmm. admired as well known for playing this kind of stock character of the Pilato uh, kind of uh, very similar to Charlie Chaplin's Tramp um and I think he is the star breakout of this film. Yeah. Um, I think he's, I mean, he's funny and he is kind of, I think we're at such a distance of fog because of his kind of like icy Britishness um, mm-hmm. that, you know, he is kind of the character that we are invited to step in and he's seeing the world through fresh eyes for the first time. And a lot of the plot really revolves around him, right? You know, kind of um, what goes on in Hong Kong and meeting with the, the director, the policeman who's kind of like following them around the empire or around the world. Um, and is I, I just thought for, you know, reading from what I know about the, the novel, I thought it was a great update of the Passaportu character. And also kind of, you know, again, like, cause the, the movie adds the France and Spain sequences from the, those aren't the books. Mm-hmm. I think the book goes straight from London to Suez um, and kind of, you know, they added the bullfighting thing in for him because that was, he was, that was part of his comedic routine. 
Um, but he also gets the chance to like speak Spanish with the other Spaniards when they meet, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like an interesting, and I think, yeah, he, he pretends to be French, but I think the audience, we know he's not really French and he's just kind of this trampy character yeah. who is, you know, kind of getting by and he has all these different like careers, obviously um, in his past, like he's like, I was a juggler and all this when we first meet him. And then you have uh, Princess Ayuda, who is played by Shirley MacLaine um, and is this another interesting update from the book is that they specify that she's both a princess and that she has been educated in the United Kingdom, which is drawing on this tradition of um, sending or kind of like um, an imperial tradition of education where people would send their daughters or sons back to London or England to receive their education and come back to India or Australia or, you know, the Philippines, you know, no matter what, you know, Mm -hmm. empire we're talking about. Um, and then, of course, you, you if Fogg is kind of like the icy British stiff upper lip Englishman, then you have uh, Robert Newton as Inspector Fix as kind of this like bumbling imperial agent. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think the thing which really struck me and something which yeah, I mean, probably worth talking a lot about is kind of different visions of gender between these characters, mm. um, uh, partially between... Um, Passport 2 and David Niven's Phileas Fogg. Mm. But then also, I think, you know, the role of women and the depiction of women in this yeah. film, which I think, you know, kind of speaks to, speaks to a lot of kind of like the, uh, the way that empires conceived of themselves in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, that there was something of, you know, if we consider Fogg to be the main character of this, he is in part incredibly restrained and refined and educated but he is also seemingly the most adept person to go around the world. Um, right. And while this seems like a somewhat intention, mm. uh, this is kind of de rigueur for uh, like the the imperial vision as to what a man should be. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, on the one hand, they should be quite, you know, uh, they should be refined, they should be gentil, they should be, um, you know, uh, an example of kind of, of their race, um, whereas they should also be incredibly good uh, at traveling and conquering nature, which... Yes, um, yes, which we see many times in the film, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think you can even kind of kind of throw this forward to the way that um, uh, Bog treats Ayuda, right? You know, he's quite restrained in his relationship with her up to a point, um, you know, he, he does the right thing and saves her from being burned on a funeral pyre in India. Um, but then only then, you know, waits for her to, um, to kind of initiate kind of romantic contact because this is a man that just wants to play mm-hmm. cards and has a sense of duty about him. Um, whereas Passport yes. 2 is the complete opposite. He's depicted as being kind of womanizing mm-hmm. and chasing after women where like in every um uh, you know, in, in every single port. In every port, in. right. And I think as um, well, he's like, how did you get to England? Um, and Passport 2 is like, well, I came to England to escape women, right? Like he is a man on the run from, you know, previously assumed like scorned lovers or so on. Yeah, exactly. And I think you can, through this, you almost get kind of the, the two visions of like of kind of colonial womanhood mm. as well um, through the way in which these two men view women. Um You've got Fogg's um, saving of Ayuda, viewing her as kind of like a damsel in distress, someone that must be saved. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas you've got 
yes, in contrast to Phileas Fogg's um, kind of, you know, restrained but duty-bound treatment of Ayuda, you've got Passport 2, who, um, you know, exoticizes uh, all of the women that he meets. Um, he, you know, as soon as they go to the Thomas Cook travel agent's office, his first question to the travel agent is, well, tell me about the women in each of these places. Tell yeah. me about <laughs> the women of Bali and the geisha girls of Yokohama. Um, and kind of added to this, as, as well as being kind of somewhat like bizarre, like um, being somewhat of a womanizer, he's also very disaster prone because he's not very restrained. Um, right. So I think you've basically got these kind of two competing like modes of understanding gender in Victorian mm-hmm. empires on display here. Definitely. Um, and then it's kind of interesting, I mean, the, the masculine kind of side of things as well, but then like the woman um, kind of aspect of that is really fascinating too, because you, like I said, you have, the, I, I guess it's very like, typical of um, older movies. You have like the one token female character and in this it's Ayuda, but you also see, I mean, there's not, you know, like you kind of suggest, there's not like a lack of women elsewhere. You do have like, they're often just women that, Kantin Flas or Passport rather is attracted to, right? But mm-hmm. there are like I guess three other notable examples of moments where we look at women or we kind of see women on screen. Uh and two of them are in the reactions of kind of like England following Phineas Fogg's travels. Uh you have Glynis Johns and another cameo mm-hmm. whose name I did not write down. I'm sorry, ma'am. Um, kind of portrayed as, let me think, let me get the exact wording down. Uh, sporting lady, which I think might be code for sex worker, um, who are kind of like discussing Phineas Fogg and like, again, like like everybody else in England, kind of betting on whether or not he will finish the task, um, uh, which is not what I wanted to talk about, but shout out to Glynis John. It's another cameo I recognized. Um uh, then of course like i already mentioned queen victoria's hand so also kind of this like an un- unshown imperial figure kind of looming over all this and then at the very end as fog has realized that they have actually gained a day and can um make the bet because of the international dateline as he is desperately trying to get to the reform club on time he is stopped by a missionary woman who is preaching in the street about the yeah. deals of uh gambling which i thought was just like a perfect or not like it, the pacing in that scene I did not like, but I thought it was like an, it, the fact that like that was kind of one of the other like major uh, female roles that they put in there was really interesting because there you, you have this whole history as well of you know these kind of these imperial or in in the British Empire and in the American Empire as well of it's it's you know we have this idea of the Phineas Fogg. But so much of it is also mm-hmm. populated by people like missionaries, like women of the WCTU and yeah. of um, religious, mission, uh, organi- or religious missionary mission, or sorry, excuse me, religious missions um, going out and, you know, and this, this woman isn't, she's in London, she's preaching in London, but it, it just reminded me of that side of the, you know, these imperial spaces that fog is going through as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just to build on that, and maybe a good way to kind of segue into thinking about the United States in all of this, mm. is that there are, I think, two other notable um, depictions of women, uh, which are when they go to the United States, they see um, an election taking place, and they're yes. kind of shocked by the presence, well, they're shocked by a lot of things to do with American democracy, it seems. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but one of them is the presence of women in kind of campaign events. Um, and the second uh, example is uh, Marlene Dietrich in the 
in the saloon. In the saloon. Yeah. Um, with uh, with Frank Sinatra. Um, and you know she is, I think, maybe kind of like a notable example of of a woman who's in this film, um, who basically kind of like stands up to Phineas uh, Phineas Fogg, and is kind of like, what what are you doing here? You know, what what have you come here to find? And mm-hmm. then you know she basically chucks him out of her saloon. Um, and so maybe you know we've we've talked about kind of like ideas of masculinity and woman. Maybe this is an extra one to throw in there. That, you mm-hmm. know, this is like the like. An American vision of what Brits think of American women in the 19th century. It's kind of a lot yes. of layers there. A lot of layers. Um, but no, it's it's really fascinating, right? Because it is, yeah, I mean, and then, yeah, this is a great segue to talk about the American section, which is like comes towards the tail end of the movie. Um, it was actually actually after the intermission, because I think it goes to intermission. Um, they leave Yokohama and then we open up again with, you know, these the shots of a steamer making its way across the Pacific and... Mm-hmm. I think we're briefly on board and then we pretty soon after that dock in San Francisco and it's the craziest looking San Francisco. I mean, I, yes, I mean, San Francisco at this time is still like still very much a frontier town, um, but it seems to be an amalgamation between, yeah, just uh, it's any Western frontier, I, you know, like, I don't know if you got the same sense, but um it was such it's so it's so raucous and there's this like you know this big bombastic view of like american electioneering going on with these like parades and like people on sandwich boards and fireworks and i'm wondering like isn't it september <laughs> but they're campaigning awfully yeah. early um but is, and then this like idea of like kind of like the wild west saloon as well but this is all greeting them when they get off the boat in san francisco mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And I think one of my favourite lines in the entire film is when they see the election campaign, um, Passport 2 turns to to Fogg and says, is this some kind of religious spectacle? To which Fogg replies, it's some kind of election, I suppose. And Passport 2 responds, well, perhaps they are creating a new president. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, you know, just encapsulates the kind of, like, the difference of kind of politics between these two countries in mm. these periods that you've got this kind of raucous electioneering which seems kind of quasi like fanatical to these british observers or these european observers mm-hmm. whereas you look at politics in um and it includes to some degree women um uh in this period i guess at least in this depiction and, and you contrast this to like the reform club which is right. these kind of stuffy old men and it is just literally old men sitting around doing very, they are, they're always sitting, they are doing very little. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, the United States is, it may, it may seem dangerous and wild, but there, there are things going on. Um, and so I think it's just like a really interesting contrast that is drawn there. Um, it's interesting and, as well, because when we, we first meet the Reform Club too, um, like I think one of them, somebody, one of like the butlers offers a man with his whiskey ice. Um, and he's like, I like, don't be absurd. And he makes the yes. comment like, well, Americans do it. And he's like, well, the Americans, I think he calls them, um, Redskins, right? He, he like kind of invokes this idea already within like the first mm. 10 minutes of the movie, this sense of like, uh, wild difference between the U S and the UK. Yeah. And I mean, I thought that he said something along the lines of, I think, you know, uh, it was probably invented by some Yankee, um, yeah. they're putting ice in a drink. Which I thought was kind of maybe if it's not, if it's 1872, kind of throwing shade on the Alaska Purchase, the idea of Seward's icebox, mm. um, 
that you know what is this kind of commodity that is just water actually um yeah. uh, you know this is this is the type of idea that only an american can could have says says kind of stuffy british liberal gentleman um but yeah i think these kind of like these differences are kind of like quite clearly drawn but the, the fact that the the reform club essentially i was going to say the fact that the reform club is like the reform club is like falling down around them right there's like cracks i think you see a leak there's like a cat around and these men are kind of like what is happening um you know the the house is falling apart but they're not doing much for members of a reform club they're not doing much to amend it or remedy it yes and i think you know maybe this is a a a good segue to to kind of move to the kind of the idea of like anglo-america in this Hmm. um um, there's, there's still a bunch, I think, to talk about in terms of just, like, depictions of America. But oh, yeah, we'll this kind back. of idea of, like, Britain being um, kind of, like, a bit of a has-been. Um, yes. I think it's worth bearing in mind when this film comes out, um, and that this film is coming out right at the time that the Suez Crisis is occurring. Um, oh, that's right. Okay. And, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll also talk about the kind of the opening of the film as well. Um, and the kind of, I guess, the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film does really seem to mark kind of the handing of the baton um, from one kind of geopolitical power to another in a lot of ways. And I think that kind of contrasting uh, view of politics um, as, you know, one being pretty creaky and old and elitist to one being um, more open, but a bit more um, wild and raw. Chaotic. You know, I think yeah. that, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, chaotic um uh is a really interesting like thing to read to kind of like read into the historical context of when the film is being made hmm. no you're right that is a really interesting read um and then kind of kind of taking that forward too as into the narrative of the film um after we leave san francisco um as we move on into the narrative into the kind of like wild west portion of the movie which again we can kind of like maybe like comment on this like meta commentary of the popularity of buffalo bill's wild west show which again is like kind of from this turn of the century period that the movie is depicting um but it, yeah you read it's interesting in the sense that you know this kind of like passing of the baton as you were um and then that this the wild west portion still shows that yeah this idea of the wild west right this untamed frontier um and in what is mm-hmm. kind of the most narrative tension maybe or like kind of like action-packed scenes of the movie um which is when the train they are on is pursued by Sioux warriors. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I think the bit just before that, which I think is a, a really interesting, um, the just before the train is kind of attacked by, by kind of like Sioux uh, soldiers. Um, Fogg is kind of getting into like an argument with an, like an American man. Um, yes. And over a game of cards and the American man says to him, no, let's play a real man's game and pulls out a pistol. Um, as if to say that, you know, Bog is a bit too effete sitting there playing his cards, you know, shunning, you know, actual kind of physical activity. Um, and mm. they do end up kind of like trying to, trying to orchestrate a duel in a, in, a duel in a train on a, on a train. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, Obviously, it doesn't go very well, not least because that's the exact point at which, um, you know, the train is attacked. Uh, mm. So, yeah, I think I, I kind of, again, like plays into that kind of masculinity 
like competing ideas of masculinity in this yeah, film, definitely right really this kind of passing of the torch from a um victorian idea of restraint to maybe more like a rugged kind of your teddy roosevelt frontiersman yes yeah and it's obviously like so like carefully chosen like where they do this right because as you say that you know whereas the united states is still is, is portrayed in this as maybe being the future it is still portrayed as being quite rugged and there is still some wilderness in this country um and it is that kind of teddy roosevelt idea of well we can't be you know we can't just sit sit inside playing cards you know for this country to flourish a, a man must go outdoors a man must try and conquer the wilderness um and so yeah i think that kind of the the, the train section between kind of san francisco and new york is like really rich um in terms of kind of like imagery and ideas about america oh yeah i think as well i think well, well the, and then the fact that like um passport to kind of who is also i mean they're all kind of in different costumes so for a while you have ayuda in this um what is presumably some sort of take on indian dress um and fog kind of like you know consistently remains in his outfit and then you have passport mm-hmm. to changing into this traditional like kind of like vaquero outfit um when they get on the train mm-hmm. and he so he's wearing this very like traditional cowboy outfit and he is the one who kind of gets off the train and at- attempts to kind of like lead this band away from the train um and he gets into his own trouble he's kind of captured um and fog has to save him which complicates their train journey further um but yeah i just thought it was interesting that kind of content floss again kind of like takes the center stage in dealing with this threat and getting off the train and yeah dealing with dealing with the threat as it were and you kind of hear like a heroic version of his theme as it's played as well in this sequence yeah yeah exactly um although you know as with everything you know he, he must be saved by uh, by fog, by yeah. the kind of intrepid British explorer, um, you know, in the same way that Ayuda had to be saved. Uh, yes, who was also you know, back in the like, subcontinent. Yeah, jumping back to her as well, the fact that she is also saved by Cantinflas. Like they, um, again, kind of like point, point, poking fun at this like kind of maybe like bloated sense of British imperial bureaucracy. Um, so basically, yes. the, so this is well, I should probably talk about this. Um, uh, the whole reason the bet comes about is because there's a piece in the times oh lots of or the telegraph sorry lots of like jabs at the either the times or the telegraph in this movie as well but there's a piece in the telegraph saying that with the completion of this railway in india um it is now possible to travel the world in 80 days and fog says like yeah that makes sense and you know his other members say no and that's where the bet starts and then so they're on this train and it stops and they're like what and they get off, and lo and behold, the train has not been finished. The line is actually not complete. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, 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 the paper lied, and somebody makes a point. And we're like, well, that's why you don't read the telegraph. Um, but they're trekking through the jungle <laughs> on an elephant with um, an imperial officer of some sort. I don't know his name. I get the impression he's some sort of general or some sort. Um, mm-hmm. And that is when they see this group of people leading Princess Ayuda to the funeral pyre. Um, in this kind of depiction of seti i think is this kind of idea um that widows would be burned um on the pyres of their husbands and and they you know they're kind of in the bushes like formulating a plan of what to do and this general is like all right we can do this this and this now the only problem is we need about 80 men (laughs) (laughs) yes 
And then Fog goes like, well, what do you think? Um, Passport 2. And Passport 2 is gone. And then you kind of see it play out. And Passport 2 has switched bodies with the man on the pyre. And kind of is that, and that is how he gets, you know, everybody out mm. of the jam. Um, but like, as you say, it's, it, Ayuda is then is like, credits Fog with her savior, even though. Yes he didn't really do anything at all yeah he's he like, does you know, nothing he, he has chaperoned her you know throughout the uh the journeys i suppose but the kind of the, the true act of kind of like you know saving was by passport two yes yeah and it's almost kind of like a critique of like the british empire that like the, the brits aren't actually like like british imperial officials aren't men of action um yes. yeah uh, and they're not quite daring enough even yeah. though Fogg is going off to do this kind of like incredible, um, you know, journey around the world, it's only when he gets blown off course that he has to take not a train or not like a comfortable mode of transport. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he's, he has to be pushed into the wilderness rather yeah. than kind of the American men in this film who are very willing to kind of go and traipse through the wilderness. No, for sure. And then, yeah, I, again, kind of going back to the India thing as well, where you have this inspector following them. Um, and he, the reason he can't arrest them is because they don't have the official orders from whoever is in charge back in London. Like this, a man says like, oh, I can't do anything. I have to wait for London, right? There's a sense of like mm-hmm. inaction because of uh, the empire. Um, so it's really, yeah, it, you know, I, and I, I don't, you know, again, this is American history, um, but I kind of relishing in this chance to maybe talk about like British imperial history as well. And this episode is a kind of a byproduct of all of the movie. Oh, we should talk about the beginning because this is also absolutely kind of, okay, so zooming out from kind of like the 19th century again. This movie starts in an insane way um, to a point where I thought I had purchased the wrong movie at the start. Um, and, and I think a, in a flashback first, um, the subject of a previously covered movie appears in this movie because oh, this movie, really? yes, because this movie does not open with, um, you know, the narrative eventually does start. You see, con- um, sorry, passport to you on this giant penny farthing kind of navigating the streets of London. Uh, it will eventually actually you do start in the reform club. Anyways, the movie does not start there. It starts with about a 10 minute kind of narrative or documentary led by Ed Murrow, who is the subject of previous episode, Good Night and Good Luck with Sage. You know, listen now if you want to. Great episode. Um, so a very, a very famous TV guy, a very well-respected um, and, you know, kind of authoritative TV presenter talking to the audience and explaining the idea that a mere, uh, what, like 70 years ago, it was very difficult to travel around the world. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of also getting into the history of Georges Méliès, who also adapted, you know, an early film pioneer who also adapted some Jules Verne and getting to in this getting into the idea of, of like man and travel and like circumnavigation. And then also in the 50s, in the 50s moment, going into the stars. Yes. Yeah, I think it is. It's yeah, it's so jarring to open up this film and not be confronted with um kind of like the 19th century but to be confronted with kind of like 1950s american optimism um and yeah i mean both just like stylistically like not how i think anyone would normally open a film or maybe should open a film um but also it's a it's a bit like uh, in a way in a way it's almost a bit like kind of the the pompidou center in that it, it wears its 
it's kind of like inner workings on like on its outside by doing this and in mm. like in having this kind of li- like little document like like 10 minute like mini documentary at the start um it basically tells you everything that it's trying to do like intellectually um yes. in that it is like trying to depict kind of this moment that america is taking the battle from western europe um and like i said this is uh, you know the memory of the second world war is still extremely fresh the memory of uh like nagasaki and hiroshima are still very fresh mm-hmm. and the suez crisis is going on right at that time and this is basically an attempt to kind of uh to say you know that you know what the the western europeans at the height of their empire thought was um improbable or even impossible is now something which the americans are doing with great ease and we're even like throwing a rocket up into space and then you have this kind of like bizarre scene at the end of the at the end of this kind of like documentary section where you just have um the view of the earth from the perspective of a rocket but it's not the kind of thing which you would normally think of you know it when you think of that happening but it's just like the camera spiraling um yeah. as it you just get shown kind of the sky and then the ground and the sky and the ground mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's bizarre but like really interesting that you have this kind of like authoritative voice of like world war 2 reporting um mm-hmm. kind of speaking in these kind of uh like optimistic almost american nationalistic tones um yeah. to intro this movie yeah and then yeah i just you know kind of the whole right yeah and you know you know 70 years ago it was like a, you know it was a gas to travel the world in 80 days but now you know we're reaching for the stars and it's like the next the next uh place to explore as you were which would kind of like mm-hmm. you know turn out to be a bear, to bear true in a you know in about 10 years so yeah just i i can't you know it's this movie uh, is almost yeah it's almost like the historic i'm surprised kind of like getting into reception and this might be kind of like just the fact that it is based on a very famous book um and that people like i mentioned earlier like nelly bly kind of you know attempted and were successful in replicating or even doing it less than 80 days um but there hasn't been a lot of historical attention on this movie from what i could tell um it certainly has um i think obviously like film historians focus on it for its role in the tade or kind of you know bringing about this tadeo project um because it was the second movie to kind of be filmed and released in this way after oklahoma another movie i'd love to do one day um but and then also, yeah, it, its place is kind of like an epic film and is a best picture winner. But for like such, it, it offers such an interesting array of like different historical things to talk about, you know, from the the processes of, you know, world travel and empire and transnational activism and so on and so forth. And I mean, yeah, we haven't, we've kind of just like, I feel like, I feel a bit bad because our discussion of Princess Ayuda has kind of been like dropped off in like various different bits of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's really fascinating as like this woman who is the daughter of these transnational actors and is like, you know, studied in the UK and then it comes back to India and ideas of, you know, vulnerable women and how women of western cultures and men men and women of western cultures needed to you know come in and uplift these women but that's a whole other (laughs) i mean we can spend another like 20 minutes talking about that um but i'm trying to there's so many and then the ed murrow thing at the start and it's you know its role as a travelogue um 
in the 50s, but also like the fact that it was a travelogue in the 1870s. There's just so much going on here. And like historians have just not talked about it. <laughs> as far as I can tell. If any historian would like us to come forward and, you know, say like, actually, so-and-so, you know, wrote about it in this book, please go ahead. Um, but the only thing I could find was that um, one historian, Vanessa Schwartz, discusses the film as emblematic of a new sort of cosmopolitanism in American film productions in the 50s in her mm. book, It's So French, Hollywood, Paris, and the Making of Cosmopolitan Film Culture. Uh, but that, of course, is focused on like the production of it because this movie did go to all the countries it depicted and like, you know, to have that kind of sense of authenticity, which again is a holdover from the 19th century. Um, yeah, yes. sorry, I, that was a big ramble, but this movie is so historically interesting. It has so many layers and historians have just yeah. not engaged. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe that's, I think that could be something to do with the, the different status um, of kind of, I guess, film history versus the history of like literary texts and novels. And it might be that, you know, just as historians who, you know, I think probably tend to go a little bit more towards the kind of criticism and the literature on the Jules Verne novel um, mm. rather than on this thing as a film. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure exactly why, you know, it's been so ignored, because as you say, it's just so, so rich and so interesting. Um but yeah, I guess maybe it's the, you know, the, the book looms a little bit too large. Okay, yeah, I mean, I guess a big, it's a big movie and, you know, it's three hours long, so there's a lot to talk about. Um, I guess maybe the shout out, like uh, the balloon sequence is interesting. So that's also added from the book. There is no, you know, kind of fantastical mm -hmm. hot air balloon um, sequence in the book. But it does kind of get, to, again, to your comment about when Fogg is in a pinch, he masters nature, right? So you have this balloon sequence, you see it again. Um, with the elephant in India. Um, oh, I right, of course. So the steamship at the very end, which is funny, um, going to Venezuela, which I know you have a whole thing. On... <laughs> Actually, what, what was the Venezuela crisis? The 1890s. A little bit okay. before. A little bit before. Okay. Um, uh, but oh, yes, of course. Um, when they're crossing, so after they get off the train to save Passport to You, they are kind of like stuck in Fort McKierney, I believe it is. And they see Joe Brown from um, kind of his biggest role, I think to modern audiences would be some like it hot. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make a makeshift like sail train out of a yes. old wagon. And again, I think the wagon like print is like the wild, an old wild west show or something. And then they just like sail past the train they were originally on as well and get to Omaha that way. Um, but yeah, so it's and, and and then that and then like you said, like this uh, this steamship where they miss their boat regardless, so they have to convince this. Uh, how I, I was like I was like struggling to think of the name of the boat. The this kind of it's like what you associate with the American South. This paddle paddle boat, right? Yes, paddle, well, tugboat yes. maybe. No tugboat tugs. Um, <laughs> hold on, let me, yeah, let me that, that, do that, a, a quick a quick uh, river boat. It looks like a river boat. Um, Sure. But it's, it's, you know, theoretically, it's only supposed to be going to, you know, kind of crossing the Gulf, you know, down the coast through the Gulf of Mexico or the Caribbean and to Venezuela. But Fog convinces instead for it to make the transatlantic journey. Um, and there yes. you, they have to dismantle the entire boat to get to Liverpool. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. In order to burn, like get more fuel to burn. Yes. That's, um, the, that's the key. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's almost in kind of like a, a intertextual reference here, but you know, it's it's almost like that scene at the start of Pirates of the Caribbean where Captain Jack Sparrow like gets to land just as he walks off the top of the mast of the ship as it's sinking. Yes. Um, yeah. It's extremely got that vibe, but they've just like deconstructed everything of this ship, and you've got like the barest of bare bones that gets into port in in Britain. Um, I guess one other thing, um, which I think is worth mentioning in terms of kind of oceanic travel, is the the intermission occurs as they're sailing across the Pacific, yes. um, which I think is so like interesting in terms of how we conceive of the world via a map. Yes. Um, it's literally that they've gone off one side of the map. We have an intermission and they emerge on the other side of the map. Yes. Um, yeah. It is. And then I, w- I was kind of thinking, so like, oh, like, are they going to go to Hawaii? But they don't, which like, you know, in a, if you were crossing the Pacific at this point in time, you from Yokohama to San Francisco, you would have had a stopover in Honolulu as well. So I was kind of like looking forward to that, but alas, no, I was intermissioned. Um, but yeah, it is, you're right, kind of right, because we, as we think of the traditional world map, the Atlantic is in the center and the Pacific is on either side. It is kind of the disjuncture point. Yeah. So it is fascinating that they put the intermission there. Yes, yeah, it is quite literally the intermission on the Makata projection of the map that we think of. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, yeah, what a what a wild movie. And then, of course, yeah, we kind of get in. So, again, he gets in. He's briefly arrested and then cleared of his name. Uh, he proposes to, or she proposes to him almost, to Ayuda. Um, and then in the rush to find a minister, they realize, actually, uh, they have a day left. They rush to the reform club. He gets there on time. He's not ruined financially. Uh, mm-hmm. But then Ayuda has followed him. And I guess, shock, horror, there's a woman in the reform club. And somebody says, that could spell the end of the British Empire. And then I think the club does finally fall to shambles. And yes. scene. <laughs> yes, yeah. What a, what a, like, kind of, almost kind of like anticlimactic way, I think, to end the film, which is that, you know, like, it, it, it in my mind, I expected it to go on for like 10 minutes of just of like fog gloating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it didn't. Um, but I mean, it was, was a very long film and I think we have enough uh, kind of fog content or fog gloating content um, in in the entire film. So maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, it, yeah, so just kind of, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't overstay as well. Maybe he does overstay as well because the movie is three hours long. Um, but, but then we get some like lovely like Saul Bass um, credits, which kind of recaps the film as it were, and you know gets mm-hmm. you know a list a lovely list of cameos as well who appeared. Um, yeah, it's around the world in eighty days. Do you have anything else to add, Neil? No, I think we've we've uh, we've covered it. It's a it's a very long film um but like uh, so many talking points absolutely um i will just kind of add as well um some like tidbits before we close off uh we talked about todd ao um todd the man who produced the film claimed that they visited every country that is like shown in the film so england france india uh what is now bangladesh spain thailand japan um it made a lot of money <laughs> as again talking about the spectacle um and critics really loved it at the time you know uh, variety said it was a smasheroo which may be something we should bring back 
um, Time called it an epidemic of gigantism, or sorry, they opened the review by saying an epidemic, an epidemic of giantism is sweeping the movie world, uh, and then comparing it to the other giant movies that year, and uh, said that it was as a travelogue around the world is as at least as spectacular as anything Cinerama has slapped together. So both, you know, spectacular and uh, taking a stab at Cinerama, a rival widescreen uh, projector moment. And yeah, it, you know, and it, as we've said, like it won Best Picture. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction in Color, Best Cinematography in Color, Best Costume Design in Color, Best Film Editing, and Best Musical Score of a Drama or a Comedy, which I learned today that apparently there are still two separate film music categories but there has not been enough musicals to trigger the other because it is either best musical score for a drama or a comedy or best musical score for a musical oh but because we just like don't make enough musicals anymore the other category has not been triggered you know in a few decades that's besides the point it won five best picture screenplay (laughs) cinematography editing and score and i think i think that's it around the world in 80 days Yes, and in, in 60 to 70 minutes. Yes, exactly. Um, well, this has been a blast. Thanks for coming on and talking about this, Neil. Um, I'm sure we might continue this conversation off mic as well. Um, but is there anything you would like to plug? Um, well, I mean, I'm coming to the end of my, my PhD, so sadly, not so many things to plug other okay. than... Uh, uh, maybe you're like... Up. A- Writing up, yes, of course, you're about to enter the, the final stretch, as it were. Um, maybe any books that people are interested in your like topic or in if they want to learn more about the world of around the world in 80 days could turn to ah yes that's a, a good a good question something worth plugging with regards to my research is um samuel moyne's recent book humane i think is a great take on um the world of ideas of peace and war in the 19th century um and goes right up to the present day um and in terms of understanding the around the world in 80 days um, I think the two things, the two books which were, you know, brought to mind when watching this film, um, or the two authors, I think that's a better way of thinking about this, were kind of Kristen Hoganson yeah. and everything which she's written, and then um, Duncan Bell talking about the British Empire and ideas of kind of um, space and time and mobility. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, so listeners, if you want to learn more, uh, check out Neil's recommendations. And I think with that, I will say that has been our episode on Around the World in 80 Days. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at FlashbackHistopod. That is at F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O-P-O-D. And we will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.